0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with John Levy, who is the founder of the Influencer Dinners, now I guess called Influencer Labs, also the author of couple of books. The most recent book is called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. And then you've got this uh, previous book, which is called The 2AM Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. It's got this. Holy, Holy cow, cow you, managed you managed to get a, a copy. copy. Isn't
0: that, Isn't that super, super fun? Yeah. For those of you who can't see this, the cover of that book actually has a rotator built into it and you can spin it and get different adventures to do in your life. So it's like a game and book. It won best design book.
1: Well, you know, so I read the more recent book first and then went back and read the earlier book. And, you know, it was interesting because I could see the origins of the second book in the first book. Because in, in a way, um, mm-hmm. the first book was about architecting, you know, your own experience to facilitate, mm-hmm. you know, adventure and influence. And then later, the second book is really all about architecting other people's experiences in a way to facilitate... Yeah. Adventure and, and influence, but it's really much more about crafting uh, an adventure for other people. And I think that, you know, the second book, there's an element of it, which is as an individual, right? How can you do this? But then, you know, you also talk about how corporations and organizations can architect experiences that will be memorable for people. And as somebody who uh, not only loves to throw a lot of dinner parties, But I also organize a lot of these immersion trips for people visiting Silicon Valley. You know, I found a lot of what you were saying to be, it's common sense, but kind of common sense only for the people who do it, do it an awful lot, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. People often talk about my work as, oh, I had a hunch about that, but I never had the words Mm -hmm. to describe it. And so it's, I spend a lot of time thinking about what do we believe is true that just is absolutely total BS? And then what is it that if we were aware of it would make us actually more effective? And so I think the first book does that really well when it comes to living an exciting and interesting life. And the second one is really ask this question, if we wanna have an effect on our life, if we wanna really accomplish something and you listen to most of the advice that's out there, it doesn't actually work. Like if you listen to all like the big gurus, if you were to do exactly what Bill Gates did, it wouldn't work for you. So the question is kind of what does. And what we really notice is that relationships define everything and you don't need lots of money for relationships. You don't even need to be like super charismatic or good looking to have friendships. It's really something that's kind of universal. And I think that's one of these unique things that if we can understand the mechanics of how relationship works, just like how an adventure works, suddenly things become possible that otherwise would be impossible.
1: You know, you you put a sort of scientific, I guess it's kind of a, it's a pseudo-scientific, right, lens around it with this influence equation where you talk about the importance of connection Mm -hmm. and trust and community.
0: It's a model, right? So like the classic statement is that all models are wrong, just some are useful. I'm hoping this one's kind of useful, right? So any descriptor we give of the universe doesn't actually encompass Mm -hmm. the universe, but maybe we could give a description that helps us understand what's going on to some degree. And so I looked at the really hard science and did my own research. I do research alongside uh, a very well-known neuroscientist at Kellogg, and we were able to find some pretty staggering things. And In aggregate, it really tends to seem to pan out that our relationships define anything we actually care about from human longevity to team success to like company stock value, employee sick days, profitability, like all these things. So it's kind of
1: wild. In social sciences, we try to separate out, you know, selection from treatment, right? And we're trying to figure out are the people who graduate from Harvard successful because they, you know, we, we, so Harvard's really good at selecting the people who are going to be successful or does harvard actually do anything mm-hmm. and and i think in your books you're talking about both pieces right on the one hand you know you have to choose the right people to hang out with i mean you, you use you talk about you yes. know, nicholas Christiakis's work and if you want to be fit hang out with fit people if you want to be interesting hang out with interesting people yeah. but then if that was all there was to it then you know you probably wouldn't need 90 percent of the I guess the, you would need a bunch of the advice because otherwise people wouldn't want to hang out with you, right? But, you know, a lot of the advice is about how to how to shape an, an experience that, you know, brings out things mm-hmm. from people or kind of brings out at least certain characteristics of people that will be make it more likely sure. that the positive effects will kind of rub off on you.
0: Or, or mitigate those negative mm-hmm. effects. So I, I think that you're absolutely right. And I think Christakis' work is actually a great example. You brought up this idea that, is Harvard really good at selecting the people that become successful, or is it something that happens at Harvard? And uh, for Harvard Law School, I think there was this fantastic study that looked at effectiveness of lawyers relative to which law school they went to. And as prestigious as Harvard Law is, it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. You could go to any decent law school and get the same results. Now, you might not get a clerkship for Supreme Court justice because they're snobby and will only for the most part, take the Harvard kids. But it doesn't mean that those people are any better in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. So in Christakis and Fowler's work that you pointed to, they asked this kind of funny question. It was like the early 2000s, I think. And they said, hey, obesity is kind of discussed as an epidemic. Does it spread from person to person like a cold? Or is it a percentage of the population? And in general, what they found was that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by, I think it was 45%. Your friends who do not know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance. And so we aren't used to thinking of the virality of human Uh behavior. If I want to, I don't know, be more creative, then I should just hang out with creatives. Or for me, it was, I kept setting my alarm for 6am to go to the gym and then never following through with it. I kept hitting snooze and hating myself for it. I realized I should just hang out with athletes and then Instead of eating a tub of popcorn at the movies, I'll go work out as part of just my social scene. And so the question is, why does this happen? And so I think part of it is both sides of that Harvard equation. I make friends with people in the environments that I'm in. So if we both go to the same gym, we're more likely to be friends, but we're also more likely to be fitter in general. So that's part of it. Birds of a feather flock together. It's called homophily. The other part of it is that if I am going to a meal with you and you order a dessert, there's a really good chance I'm going to eat some of that dessert, whereas otherwise I wouldn't. And that's where behavior becomes contagious. Because if I start spending a lot of time with people who are really fit, my personal image and standard of what fit looks like changes and shifts towards more to maybe the muscular side. And then I change my behavior to match that. Whereas if I start hanging out with people who are really negligent of their bodies, then my standards change. And their habits become my habits. So I think it's, it comes from both sides.
1: Well, the flip side of that is the impact you have on other people. So, you know, people who hang out with you, whatever it is that you bring to the table is going to rub off on them. And so I was wondering if, you know, if you gave a lot of thought to that, right? Especially in the, you know, the 2AM principle. I mean, are these co conspirators that you mentioned in the book, were they born or made? I mean, did, did you get them to start doing these crazy things that, that you would do, you know, um, jumping into moving limousines and, crashing parties and although i think you know you ran with the bulls by yourself battling Kiefer sutherland and drunken jenga i mean do you think a lot about the impact i mean certainly i do i mean as a teacher you know i have a very distinct mission which is to infuse in, in my students certain characteristics which i think of as as virtues and you don't say this explicitly but i think that you believe that this thirst for adventure is in many ways a virtue i mean you talk about curiosity Do you think of this as a virtue or do you think of this just as a, you know, personality trait?
0: I see it as a virtue up until a limit, right? Let's take the extreme cases and work backwards if that's okay. I have a huge respect for, let's say, Olympians, right? The number of years of effort, the training, the pain they put themselves through, all for like a shot at representing our country. And then if you actually look, depression rates are really high, suicide rates are really high. Finding a purpose after the Olympics is really difficult. And so do I have an admiration for them? Yes. Would I want my child to be an Olympian? No, because I just don't think that there's a benefit at the extreme. And I view adventure in the same way. I think some is really great. The level that I was going, oh man, my parents must have been freaking (laughs) out, right? There's climbing Everest and being the first to the peak. Amazing. The number of people who had to die along the way, it's more Mm. risk than I would recommend. So In the book, I really go into this idea that adventure is a fantastic process to live an interesting, exciting, potentially creative life. It's a fantastic way to bond with people that you adventure with. And more importantly, it is a incredible way to build the muscle of social skills and tolerance for discomfort and social discomfort. These are skills that are essential in just about anything you'd want to do in life. But in the extreme it's it's probably like being an Olympian. It's, you're putting yourself in a lot of risk for questionable value.
1: Is adventure sort of a, I mean, is it an end in itself or is it a a means to an end? I mean, I think you kind of flip back and forth. So partly, you know, you're, you're just trying to, you know, have this exciting, interesting, stimulating stream of experiences. But then I think you also talk about how this helps you not only personally, but professionally, right? So To what extent is, do you think people should be maximizing this flow of novelty? And to what extent, you know, is it really more, okay, you can be more successful uh, in terms of achieving your goals and, and, and to what extent, you know, are they more or less the same thing, like your goal is community, your goal is connection, your goal is trust. And, you know, the adventures that you specifically emphasize are ones that involve other people. You're running with the bulls, maybe something that's more solitary, but even when you're jumping off a bridge, you're, you're jumping off a bridge with someone, right?
0: So I think that the important thing to realize is that every piece of research I've ever come across on the topic of kind of the value of human connection continues to show that Having close social ties is a better prescription for your health than taking statins. Not that I'm recommending anybody getting off their meds, but like nothing comes close to the value of deep social ties and being integrated into a community. These things have an incredible ability to reduce stress, increase quality of health. It's how people find their jobs, how people get support in difficult times. There is not a thing that, as human beings, isn't touched by this. And so, for me, the idea that, hey, I can somehow separate that from anything else is funny. It's like asking how important is air. (laughs) Like, we just need it. And those people who don't have any meaningful relationships tend to die significantly younger. They tend to suffer from more anxiety and depression and uh, lower rates of productivity. And so if you want to be effective, if you want to have a fantastic career, if you want to accomplish anything that matters to you, it's going to be really tough to do that without meaningful social ties.
1: Now, look, there's different types of social ties, right? I mean, some are deeper than others. A lot of the things that you're talking about is you can establish some form of social tie, you know, relatively quickly. Right. I mean, I think if you go to law school, you know, you're going to have 300 people that you're going to be immersed with, you know, without really making any kind of effort to some degree. But that's not really what mm-hmm. most people are experiencing. I mean, most people, if you want to have social ties, you don't inherit this community that you might have inherited in the Middle Ages. I mean, you have to be very proactive about constructing social ties so do you think that people are i don't know lacking in the courage to create these social t- i mean i notice even myself i'm not i'm sometimes i'm more reluctant to pick up the phone if i want to book tickets and i can't book them online and i gotta pick up the phone and call some human being I'm, I, I i feel very reluctant to do that i i don't think 20 years ago obviously i wouldn't have felt any reluctance to pick up the phone but do you think it's harder now to create these networks of ties there's two factors that play into each
0: other that both make it harder and easier. So human beings have this characteristic, and in fact, most living systems do, something called anti-fragility, which is there's some things that are fragile, like a champagne glass, you drop it, it'll shatter. Then there's things that are also anti-fragile. You apply pressure to them, they actually get stronger, like our muscles. And so when it comes to our social skills, not only Are they anti-fragile, meaning that as you practice them more, you get better and stronger at them? But they atrophy when you don't. Mm -hmm. And so, especially in a post or post-ish pandemic situation, our social skills have atrophied to a large degree. But we're also in an era where there's so many systems and even actual people that baby us prevent us from actually needing to develop those skills. So when your mom is involved in every aspect of your social life from a young age, and you don't need to learn how to make friends and you don't need to learn to talk to strangers because mommy is helicoptering or daddy is helicoptering around you, then yeah, you're gonna be weaker. And that's gonna be significantly weaker between generations now, because even your generation, versus your students, we're talking about a wildly different social structure. Yeah, you were happy to take call a cell phone because it meant that you didn't have to walk out onto the street, find a newspaper so that you could get the answer to something like when are the movie times, right? You're happy to call a theater and get an answer. Now you go online and that's become so easy that it doesn't require you to push the social skill. It doesn't require you to strengthen that muscle. And so I think that we're facing this whole issue of anti-fragility. And ever since about 1950, right when post-war sentiment from World War II was beginning to die down, and the television entered the home, we see a massive decline in people participating in social groups and their number of friends. And so this is a cultural trend. Yes, it's harder now because we've weakened our muscles, and we've made it really, really easy to stay at home and press play on Netflix.
1: So do you think that we, we need personal trainers for our social skills? And maybe even, you know, like with kids, right? The kids are sent off to basketball camp. I mean, should, do, should we send them off to, you know, social skills camp, right? And have a bunch of weightlifting um, stations that they have to go to to learn how to like, okay, here's how you go up and introduce yourself to somebody in the playground. You know, here's how you introduce, say hello to the person in the store. I think you actually bring up a really great point. So the way we would
0: make friends, I would assume when we were young, was we just grew up with people. Like Mm -hmm. I'm talking tens of thousands of years, right? We were part of the same tribe. Yeah, just barely, I'm I'm much older than I look. Uh, So you just grew up with people and those social ties grew over time. That was your tribe, nothing
1: to really think about. To be fair, those people might not have encountered strangers as often as we do, right? I mean, we encounter strangers anytime we
0: leave our home, most likely, unless you live in a small town, right? So if you're in a major urban area, you probably come in contact with a stranger. As cities grew and populations grew, then you would kind of come in contact with more people, but we're not naturally inclined to just talk to strangers. It's not like how our species evolved. So if you really look, people become friends kind of based on one proximity, So if we're in each other's orbit in some way, Mm -hmm. and two, through joint activities or common ground, right? So shared activities, culture, history, you know, if both of us are stamp collectors, we're much more likely to be friends. And so I think what we're going to be seeing and kind of one of the solutions here is look at organizations like Meetup and people needing to find groups that have a shared interest. It's going to be from joining like a soccer league and a and an art class, because that's where how tribes are formed through communities. And I do think that we need people to help us with this, frankly, but I don't think it'll come in the form of a community coach. I think it'll come in the form of like soul cycle for socialization, right? Like it's going to be part of our subscription fees that we pay every month or are you know we pay x amount for a class to be part of a participate in a community well
1: i was wondering if you could tell us just about the origin of the dinner party that you created oh sure because i i you know when i think i I think of you i think oh he's the dinner party guy right that's that's your claim to fame that brought me to your work and just talk about you know how that came about because i'm a big dinner party guy i love throwing dinner parties but I've also found that it's a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult in some ways when you're in a bigger city with busier people. I remember when I taught university at a small university town, you know, throwing together a dinner party was super easy and my you know response rate was pretty high. And, and when, you know, you're in a place like San Francisco Bay Area, I mean, it's, it's like herding uh, cats. It's
0: the hardest. I'll be honest. I throw dinner parties all across the country now extended into many countries. And the hardest place by far is the Bay Area. I think that people just have this cultural thing about being over-scheduled and having to hustle and become the next unicorn or whatever it is. Let's not use San Francisco as an example, but I, I agree. So I'll answer your question like this. Do you know in TV shows where they show a kid who's really geeky and kind of isolated and the parents are worried that they don't have any friends? I admired those kids for being so social growing up. Like the i was really unpopular and uh i was into tech and geek stuff before any technology was cool right there weren't really many video game systems and things like that like there are now where you could be a professional gamer i grew up
1: geeky so if you grew up and, 20 years later you'd have like a million followers on twitch yeah, right exactly no, no that's
0: <laughs> that's it i geek culture now rules it's having a moment. Uh, I just missed all that by a few years. And uh, the problem was I was reached about my like late 20s. And, you know, I'd made some friends, but I wasn't like an impressive person by any stretch of the imagination. I was sitting in a seminar, personal development training, and the seminar leader said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And I got really curious Having those social ties is so critical. What would cause the people I admire to actually want to interact with me? And after doing a bunch of research, I came to the conclusion that the answer would be to convince people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors. And the weirdest thing is, uh, I've been doing this for 12 years now. Oddly, they thank me for it. So I host 12 people at a time at an anonymous dinner They're literally not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. Uh, They cook a meal for me. And when they sit down to eat, we play a guessing game to guess what people do professionally. And we are almost always wrong. And then we find out we're sitting with Olympians and Nobel laureates and celebrities and Grammy award winners and the occasional prime minister or princess or anyone else you could imagine. It's industry leaders, people who really have the respect of their industry I've hosted probably over 2,500 people at 284 dinners as of Tuesday and 11 cities in four countries, and we keep expanding.
1: Now, now, here's the thing. If everybody knows, I know I used to use the Evite, right? And people would always check and say, well, who, who, else, is, who else is coming, right? Now, in your, in your parties, like, no one can check to see who, who else is coming.
0: No, I don't. And the funny thing is, I don't even know. So yeah. after years of doing this, I said, I'm actually not qualified to decide if somebody's an industry leader because what do I know about astronomy? It's not my area of expertise. So how would I know if somebody's a successful astronomer? And so uh, we handed it over to a selection committee and we have a research team and I have a team of four people who all they do is this and organize it for me. And I just go in and I run every single dinner.
1: Yeah. And what's funny about it is that the the participatory element, right? You know, this Ikea mm-hmm. e- effect that you talk about. And, you know, I, I worked in restaurants, so I always thought, oh, when my guests show up, everything's going to be, tables going to be set and, and you know, the candles are going to be lit and so forth. But, you know, when I have my family and friend gatherings, that's never the case. We're all just pitching in. And yeah. I, yeah. Hanging out in the kitchen, talking to you. And- yeah. And I remember one time I was throwing this dinner party when I first moved to um, this small university town and I invited the dean of the law school over. And of course, I I, I thought that if, you know, if I said 7.30, that meant eight. So of course he and his wife showed up at 7.30 and I was like in my underwear basically. And so I I put them to work peeling potatoes, you know, I got dressed and stuff and they had, they had a wonderful time, right? They really enjoyed it. And I I realized, wow, you know, people do want to be, it gives them a feeling much more of a family environment, and, of course, they knew, you know, they knew each other, but still, it was this, this idea. I mean, if everybody's working, then you're not talking about, like, what do you do? Instead, you're past the potatoes. And in America, that is what we do, right? That's the first thing that we say when we meet someone is, what do you do?
0: There's a few things, if I could point to in this. One is that if you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're sitting across the table from them, that's an interview. That's yeah. not a, like, at, if I'm taking a walk with you or if I'm peeling potatoes, part of the nervous energy is occupied by the activity. Mm -hmm. And then if I have nothing to say, we can turn to the activity. Yeah. That is a much more natural way to interact. And if you actually think about it, if we're talking our evolution, I'm just guessing, I'm not an anthropologist, but I'm guessing on this, that we probably spent long periods of time working with either cattle or livestock of some kind or going hunting. That was spent in silence and then conversation and then silence and working the activity and and so on. And that seems like a much more natural way to engage with each other. Yeah. Rather than the pressure of like, okay, in this 30 minute block, we're going to find out everything about each other so that we like each other so that Mm -hmm. we'll do business. Yeah. That's weird. The second thing is you pointed to this idea that in America, the first thing we talk about is our work. And I think that that's true within specific social circles and that is when you do something that gives you so much let's say pleasure or status that you have like a spiel about it Mm -hmm. then i think it's more likely and i point to the work of what is it jonah berger from university of upenn and he looked at car purchases and what he found is that if you have like some fancy job like your high-powered lawyer then your car needs to be unique It has to be different and stand out. If you are working class and you're like, you know, a coal miner or you work on the assembly line of something or whatever it is, you actually get more confidence if you have the same car as your neighbors. And I think the argument is twofold. One is it's probably a percentage of your income. So you want to feel like you've done something reliable so you're Mm -hmm. happier when it's similar to other people because you feel good about the decision the other side of it is a matter of identity so if i have a job that's like okay i assemble the doors onto cars that's probably less of the way i see myself as an identity i probably see myself more as a sports fan of a specific team or the church i go to or whatever else it is that i'm involved in so my job probably ranks lower on the self-identity aspect the more my job is a part of who i see myself as the more likely i would think people will mm-hmm. go there and then the more of a of a chance that there's an opportunity meaning if i'm a lawyer and you're a ceo of a company there's more of a chance then for opportunity if we're both in manufacturing cars or something like that, then like, there isn't necessarily an opportunity to quote unquote network, right? Because
1: neither of us are in any position that it would matter. If you're mixing people high status and low status, it seems like an unequal trade, right? If people are obsessed with status and you throw them into an environment, if you go to a football game, you start talking to somebody, but you know, you don't typically don't say, what do you do? You know, you talk about, Hey, well, let's deal with that, you know, interception or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're out on a ski trip with somebody, or, you know, you're on the lift with somebody, I mean, you, you probably start talking about the ski conditions and so forth. But then doesn't that deprive the high status people of the thing that they want the most, which is praise and accolades and, and so forth? I guess it's different if you're bringing in nothing but all-stars because it's, it's an equal trade. But So
0: I, I don't think that that's the thing that we strive for the most. Mm-hmm. I would argue very simply that if you look at Maslow's higher order of needs, we're used to thinking at the base is food, water, shelter. But If you look, people are willing to starve themselves in order to fit in. People are willing to die for a cause in order to fit in, to be recognized, right? Maybe that's status, you could argue. Which means that for human beings, belonging is pretty critical. You want to look at our punishments, right? Aside from capital punishment, the biggest punishments we have are exile, which says you cannot be part of this community anymore, or solitary confinement, which says you are not fit to be around people anymore. And so the issue, I think, is that probably what we want more than anything is to belong. I think that if you really look what led us to survive as a species is that we're not really the very fast. (laughs) We're definitely not very strong compared to most animals out there. Like, are we arguably smarter? Sure, to a large degree, but plenty of other animals use tools and communication and all that. We're just really, really good at working together. Mm -hmm. We're really good at surviving because we can come together in communities and packs and teams. And so I actually think that the most important thing is first to belong. Mm-hmm. Once you belong, status then probably becomes pretty important.
1: The other thing that comes up here is this cooking and work part. I invited um, my, my cousin over for, uh, we're going to an event later this weekend. And, and I, said, I wasn't hey, invited. Know. Wow. That, so that's how it's like, going to be. Hey, you know, I was like, we can have dinner before the play. And she was like, no, 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 I don't want you to have to, cook and clean and all that stuff you know yeah you don't have to do that and I was like yeah well I actually like that she's like nah you don't want to do that and so I said to her I was like because this is one of my standard tropes that I talk about in class is like there's got to and there's get to and it's just Mm -hmm. completely in your it's it's totally up to you in your mind whether you know you've got to cook or you get to cook and it's it's completely a matter of perspective and so you know these folks who you have come and peel potatoes and stuff, right? You know, normally they think of this as something that they have to do and they don't really want to do it. But yeah. then, you know, you you flip it. And so now it's like, hey, it's something you get to do.
0: I Tom sawyer them. Is that what it yeah. was at Huck Finn? Where Tom's he's sawyer. like, oh no, I'm painting the fence, but it's too fun. You don't get to do this.
1: Right. Yeah. And so one thing I would do for some of my immersion programs, typically they would come from Europe for a week and they would not necessarily know each other very well. The very first day of the program, we would all go to this There's a place here in Berkeley where, for a fee, you can essentially cook your own meal in a restaurant-style kitchen. And the guy who runs it gives you some instructions, the recipes, ingredients, and then unleashes you, and, and then we all make our own dinner. And I remember, you know, talking to the university folks who were paying for the whole thing. And they were like, wait, we have to pay this to make our own dinner? It's like the same price as, as, you know, going to the restaurant and having it served. They they didn't understand like the point. And I was like, no, 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 this is actually gonna be better. People are gonna enjoy this more than they would if they just had a sit down dinner.
0: Oh, far, far, far more. The number of companies that have come to me asking me if we could do the dinner is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And generally I say, no, what we can do is kind of design something that's custom to you and your organization because it doesn't, you want your activities to like flow with your values. And clearly like (laughs) some of those people aren't valuing quality time spent together or see the opportunity of that.
1: Well, so can you talk about these corporate events, right? So, I mean, you talk about Mm -hmm. discovery, engagement, you know, membership. Well, first of all, I mean, I think it makes sense for employees, I suppose, to have this sense of membership. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is extended to a much larger group now. So, you know, Salesforce is famous for having Dreamforce, and and so companies want their customers to feel like they're part of a community. They want their suppliers yeah. to feel like they're part of a community. They're independent software developers and distributors and channel partners. To what extent are, are companies and brands like a source of, of, of identity and community now? And, and do you think, think that that's huge. important? Yeah.
0: I think that it's huge. I think the issue is that, you know, you keep hearing from brand marketers that brand loyalty is an all-time low. That you know, what do you actually care which detergent you're using in most cases to clean your clothes? Especially if you're like sending it out, I couldn't care less. If I could have you experience a sense of belonging to the organization, to the brand, it's a matter of identity. Mm-hmm. It's the, that if my logo appears here, then you're on the inside of something. Then that's pretty incredible. I think a, actually a contemporary example that it's really a little almost weird, is have you ever heard of the Board Ape Yacht Club? Yeah. The NFT company? Yeah. Tens or hundreds of thousands of Well, dollars. a little bit less now. <laughs> yeah. But when I asked why, they said, well, you know, the you get to own the thing. I was like, okay, great. Congrats, you own this thing that, I mean, I could have just downloaded for free. And then they said, but what's pretty extraordinary is the community events that they're running. And you use your ape to get into it. And now you have access to things that you normally don't. And that was the first time I kind of saw a bit of value around this idea of like a non-fungible token used in an interesting way is it's a marker for community and you can sell your spot in the community if you want. That's fine. I don't necessarily think you need an NFT for that. You can probably just have a centralized database to allow for the transactions. But I think that what we're really seeing is this emergence of. Companies trying to really build a direct relationship with customers and helping them organize. And historically, there are certain companies that have done it fantastically well. You look at Harley-Davidson, Mudrunner, right? Yeah. Or any of these like kind of crazy marathon-ish type activities. Uh, you look at the Cooper Mini has a fantastically strong community where people drive in and they come together and they show off the their cars and what they did to them. So the companies that can really do that have a little bit more future-proofing, right? If you're part of the mini community and then you're thinking about getting a new car, if you give up your mini, you're no longer part of that community. And then a entire section of your identity and social circle is gone. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing an interview with a flat earther, uh, these people who believe that somehow still in the 2000s now that the earth is flat, And what became clear was that he was very scientifically oriented, right? Was running experiment after experiment that wasn't proving his point that the Earth is flat. And what really came to light is that if he accepts that the Earth is round, he is losing his entire social Mm circle. Oh yeah, yeah. And so it's easier to just keep spending money on these experiments that don't work than to be alone. And we kind of keep seeing that. You know, we see that people who are closeted and gay would rather stay closeted than lose their mm-hmm. their community uh because they wouldn't be accepted uh we see you know it's kind of wild that the community of amish is so strong that kids go out at 16 on Rumspringer and experience the world and then they're like okay back to you know horse and buggy because the community's values are so strong and being part well, of it o- is only so about weird. half of them <laughs> that's still insane yeah. like if you literally grew up without a smartphone, without knowing that technology exists, and suddenly I introduce you to vodka and cell phones, like the fact that all those people are going back, that's like a pretty wild thing, right? Mm-hmm. And listen, I'm, I don't drink very often. I try to avoid my cell phone a lot. But like, still, it's just such an amazing world. And then yeah. to close yourself off from that, by choice is pretty incredible and i would argue that it's
1: a factor of belonging yeah so to what extent do you require physical so you know i think people do incorporate brands into their identity you know you see people walking around with amber mm-hmm. and fit shirts and you know they're It's like... That was
0: more uh, in like the
1: 90s, yeah. Now it's like considered a... You you have your logos Mm -hmm. and stuff, but they don't really have, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch conventions and conferences and so forth. I mean, maybe people sort of identify each other when they're in the school, you know, in school Mm -hmm. classroom, like, oh, you you know, you're you're someone like me. And so people care about the brand and so forth. But this idea of having physical communities like the, whatever, the BMW Mm -hmm. car club or whatever, I know I have a lot of friends in the wine business and they have events they their wineries and they have subscriptions mm-hmm. and, and so forth. But then I, I remember reading about how SoFi, which is the company that does these so, student yep. loan refis and so forth, you know, they were holding these social events. And I thought, well, this is kind of nuts. Like, What kind of community can you build around? Yeah, I, re- I refinanced my student loan with the same company you did. And I thought it was just a little weird, but the, the founder had a pretty convincing story as to why this might make sense.
0: So I think that there's a, a few reasons... I'm not sure if their actual strategy was to build community, although community is a really popular term these days. In a situation like Sophie, it might be more word of mouth, realizing that like the best potential client is if I invite you to an event, mm-hmm. you will bring two of your friends to this ultra cool event, and that'll it's a word of mouth strategy.
1: Maybe yeah. so that's that's like a vodka that's like a vodka sponsoring a an event. Yeah, it's right? the
0: halo effect. It's yeah. hoping to be part of the conversation. I can understand it and it actually might pay for itself, depending on how many people keep coming to these things. The community also might exist for a greater purpose, right? And that purpose might be financial freedom or independence or responsibility. And then in time, as Sophie or Sophie, however they pronounce it, keeps growing, they might be able to then market additional products to them. And in that case, it's a fantastic strategy because then you have a really loyal audience of people who, over the next 50 years, when it comes time to get a loan for their home and loan for this and all these other kind of life events, they're around. They could be there to partner with a, I don't know, a life insurance company so that when this target audience is looking for life insurance or whatever it is, and they're having kids, they can get it. So I, I think that, especially if you look long-term and the value that a community provides, but it, it's there. The issue is that most companies, when they say community, they actually mean audience, and they're very different. Yeah, an audience is a one-way conversation.
1: I, I participated in an event that was organized by Coca-Cola, and they, they had invited all of the CMOs of all their kind of channel partners right from all the fast food mm-hmm. places and all of the channel all the restaurants and whoever was serving coke right and the conference there was really very little discussion about carbonated beverages yeah it was all about you know they had some novelists and some thought leaders and then we had some events and and lots of things and you know i think these folks really did see themselves as a community but you argue also that it's not so much putting people in a room and having them passively listen to things but the more they actually do stuff the the more community they will they will feel like they're a part of you know, in terms, of, in terms of hosting these events, I want to circle back from the corporate to the individual. Could you, if you were to summarize sort of the, the ways in which people can become more proactive about building community in their lives, what would you suggest, right? How do they start?
0: So if I were to oversimplify community, it would be a consistent opportunity to engage with people around a topic. And here's the important parts. Engage, meaning you're an active participant and a topic. Most communities exist around a thing. So there are lots of people who like to knit. I'm not joining that community because I'm not a knitter. But you need your thing so that people can identify that they're actually part of that community. Otherwise, you're just friends. Or you could kind of build a community around the fact that you're having events, but then it lacks identity to some degree. So if you want to be more active at cultivating community around you, you need consistent opportunities for people to engage with each other. So it's not just about me knowing you and me knowing your friend and me knowing 20 other people. It's how do I get them to know each other? Mm -hmm. Now, regardless of how introverted you are, you can probably handle going to coffee with two friends that might not know each other. That way they bond. And the more bonds there are between the people in your life, the more a sense of belonging you'll have. Because then when I talk, to you about Steve, you know who Steve is.
1: Right, so you don't want to just and, yeah. have promote a hub and spoke model of community, Precisely. right? You want to facilitate yeah. connections to between integrated. the different nodes and the branches, right?
0: Precisely. So in a hub and spoke model, you're connected to a whole slew of people that just don't know each other. And that's actually a really weak place to be because then if you disappear, there's nothing going on. The more interactions there are between the people, those spokes, then eventually end up with a network, that network is where the or that community is where real opportunities arise. Because then, as we discussed in that example of obesity with Christakis and Fowler, the same kind of effect exists for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. And so everything has the potential to spread through these communities. That's how people find out about jobs, get married, meet people, participate in activities, find hobbies. And the more of those interactions that exist consistently, the more familiar people are to each other and the closer they will tend to feel. That is accentuated the more effort they invest into one another, that IKEA effect, this idea that we care more about our IKEA furniture because we had to assemble it. So my recommendation, regardless of how introverted or extroverted or shy you might be, just start gathering people. Mm -hmm. Or go and participate in other people's gatherings. Let them do the heavy lifting. You might wanna find a version of me, the type of person who can't help but gather people constantly and just stay in their orbit because then you'll constantly be invited to stuff and contribute and participate. That's what it takes. Or go on to meetup and find one of like the 8,000 meetups in your area that you could participate in and just keep going because this is clearly somebody who organizes this that cares about building community. And so that's my recommendation: either start building your own, or start participating in others, or both.
1: Well, you have this metaphor in a book, which um, it's a kind of a riff on on Hume to some extent, where you know you've got the elephant and the rider, and you know the the elephant is a lot stronger than than the rider. And uh, and you say if you want to make sure that the the elephant doesn't charge off and leave you behind, then you need to create an environment where the elephant has fewer options. So this seems like architecting a world in which it's easier for you to achieve your goals. So Mm. if your goal is sociability, if your goal is community, how can you Mm -hmm. architect your world so that you're more likely to do this? You don't have to have the willpower. Part of it's about, you know, surrounding yourself with people that you want to be like, but how do you Mm -hmm. architect it so that you're more likely to meet those people?
0: That's such a great question. I think that the first thing is that you want to ask the people in your social circle who the most connected person they know is. And they'll probably all point to the same person or you'll get a few names and you want to connect with those people. And the reason is that if they exist as a central hub for social interaction, they probably really like engaging and connecting people and get to know them, spend a lot of time with them and ask them, by the way, who should I meet? Who do you think I'd be good friends with? Because they have such a wealth of contacts and that takes the pressure off of you. Because otherwise, if you say, okay, I'm gonna throw a big dinner party or something, you're like, oh my God, how am I gonna confirm 12 people? Forget that, make your life easy. Get somebody else to set you up on friend dates. And that's like a great first step because otherwise you'll stop yourself. If it's not on your calendar, if you're not like setting up, an actual meeting in time, you'll put it off until you think it needs to be perfect, like, the, oh, we have to do the perfect dinner party. I can't do it yet. I keep thinking about it. Just go out there and meet some people. And then keep it really informal and keep gathering. Say, hey, let's go to a coffee shop. Let's take a walk. Let's do a workout class together. Build yourself up to when you have enough contacts that you feel like, oh, wow, I'd really like them all to meet each other. Here's a bigger opportunity for, to do that. But my recommendation is always keep it small at the beginning because otherwise you are going to end up feeling like it has to be perfect and then it's going to stop you from doing anything. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. When it comes to dinner parties, sometimes perfect can get in the way of the good. John, thank you so much for joining me. You're Invited is the most recent book, also the 2 a.m. principle. So check these out if you want to break things up a little bit and add a little sense of adventure and certainly improve your, your social connectivity. Hope to talk to you again sometime soon, John. This has
0: been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on and for doing such thorough research. That's super impressive.